Thank you, Wayne, very much for reading that. Good morning, everybody. Um, If you are visiting, welcome to FBC. Our normal teaching pastor, Mike Fay, is on sabbatical till August, and so several of us have been taking the pulpit at different times, and my name is Andrew Schaaf, not Darth Vader, and I am uh, one of the elders here, and um, I would just like to open our time in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for, again, the privilege of looking into your word. Thank you that we have it in our language that you have provided for us. Thank you for all these uh, great teachings from the book of Matthew that we've been able to see and dig into. And Lord, today again, I just ask that I would not get in the way of what you want to do this morning, that your word would go out and accomplish what you desire in the hearts and minds of everyone here for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, some of you who are visiting might not know, Kathy, my wife Kathy and I are missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and we, was, we served in Senegal for many years, and over the last couple of times I've talked, I've shared with you a little bit about Senegal, and um, I've shared about Senegalese taxi drivers. There's one there. They are a, a wonderful group of people, and um, I shared with you, I don't know if any of you remember... Um, a Wolof phrase, Wolof being this language in Senegal that I shared three weeks ago. Um, Anybody want to hazard a guess at what it was? Do you remember that special proverb? Okay, very, very good, right? It is, which means little by little, you trap the monkey in the bush. And on that message a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how um, little steps can have big consequences, Or conversely, big things can happen through small steps. And that's actually the theme of what I'm going to be talking about again today, interestingly enough. Senegalese taxi drivers are great for illustrations. In fact, um, whenever I rode in a taxi and sat up front and tried to engage um, a taxi man in conversation, um, sometimes I I admit I was tired and sweaty and I wasn't really wanting, wanting to talk much. But other times I would pray and say, Lord, please help me be a witness. And the idea was to just plant a seed. You only had a little bit of time with this guy. Um, what can I share about you that might have an impact? And then, God willing, later, maybe another Christian would get the same taxi guy, share a little bit more, and those seeds would be planted And we would trust that God would water those seeds and bring about growth, even surprising growth. We just don't know, right? I'd love to find out someday um, what might have happened through those things. I'm going to talk about that idea of planting seeds and surprising growth this morning in two parables that Jesus gave. I'm going to look into them in just a second. But before we do that, you know, parables are stories. And I want to just look, kind of zoom out again and look at the big picture of how those stories fit in with the big story of God's Word. We're going to move really quickly, and uh, Steve shared some of it actually in his prayer this morning. As you know, we start in uh, Genesis 1 with creation, and the curse of sin comes, and the curse plays out, and we have this crescendo of the story of Noah and the ark, and basically God starts over again. And then just two chapters later, there's the interesting story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel, some of you might pronounce it that way. Um, It says it was built on the plains of Shinar, which is ancient Babylonia, and uh, historians say that the pyramids, um, towers that they made then were ziggurats, these kind of stepped pyramids. 
And the idea was that this was a stairway between heaven and earth, and gods would come down and up on these stairs. And it was actually a very, you know, in terms of what God wanted to portray about his character, this was a, a, a huge affront to God, this idea that man could make up his own religion and make a name for themselves. And so you know the story that God came down and he confused the languages there and it really forced everybody to scatter. And from that time uh, of Babel onwards, God has been revealing his true character and kind of correcting those mistakes that mankind inherently uh, does in their hearts when they, they come up with idolatry. There's a very interesting story right after that in Genesis 12 where God makes this startling statement to a relatively unknown man named Abraham, and he gives what we call is the Abrahamic covenant, and it talks about this holy seed that is going to come through him that one day would bless all the nations. I will make you into a great nation, God says, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's really an amazing, startling statement of this seed and how it's going to affect all the nations. So as I said, mankind's image of God needed to be corrected. And through the history of Israel, God is constantly doing that. He's revealing his character. And it kind of culminates, you might say, at the advent of Jesus. The people can actually see and touch and interact with God as a man. It's an amazing thing at that time. But it's not even the end of the story. God is going to do something new through Jesus and his sacrifice. The Bible set talks about a new covenant, better than the old, and a new institution, better than Israel. Because God's kingdom had a sense been an earthly one in the nation of Israel, a theocracy with defined borders. But now the kingdom was going to be redefined and expanded. And so you might think, what is the new character of this kingdom? Jesus actually has been explaining that through the Sermon on the Mount, as we've looked into through the previous months this year. But now we want to talk more about the extent of the kingdom. How big is it? What are its new borders? And what do its new citizens look like? How would it grow? And that's where we find ourselves now in Matthew. This period of, um, in Matthew, Matthew 13, of the stories called the kingdom parables. Basically, in the original language, they all start with this phrase. It is like this with the kingdom of God. And in this particular passage that Wayne read this morning, there's two parables. And at the end, there's this like little insertion that Matthew puts in to clarify, again, Why did Jesus talk in parables? And I want to start there, actually, and then look back at the parables. So what he says is Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So why parables? We've talked about a lot Uh, this a lot over the past weeks as we've looked into parables. One of them is that parables are sticky, right? They're things that people remember, these stories. They have connection points with the life and the times of the people that are listening. 
parables grab people's attention. Jesus had this very skillful way of saying things that were subtly shocking, that people would be following along with the story, and then there'd be a twist. And suddenly you'd realize that he had a message that was much deeper than just a simple story. Parables conceal the secrets of the kingdom. They're a bit like riddles. They're not secrets that are meant to be guarded forever. They are secrets for people to find out. And who are they for? Who are the people who can find out the answers to these riddles? Well, we see that as we look through Matthew. It's the poor in spirit, the thirsty, the weary, and the heavy laden. It's like Jesus looks at people listening to him. He looks them in the eye and he says, do you want to know more? Then come, follow me. Ask and seek and knock. And some people say, yes, I want to go deeper. And other people say, that was an interesting story. Look at the time. What's for dinner? And they move on. This uh, little quote at the end of that parenthetical statement that Matthew inserts here is from Psalm 78. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And Psalm 78 was apparently written by Asaph. And in that psalm, it's quite a long psalm, he talks about a story. He says, I'm going to talk in a parable. And he gives a story of Israel's unfaithfulness. It's very interesting. At the end, the last couple of verses, it's kind of a depressing psalm in a sense because they fail a lot. But at the very end, he gives this promise of, of God selecting Judah and then in instituting this Davidic line of kings that will apparently be established forever. So I think that's very interesting. And now one from that line is here, Jesus, the Messiah. And he is on the scene. What is going to be the people's response now that the king is here? That's the big question. So as I was looking at the context in Matthew, again, where we are, um, this is my kind of out of my brain, so I apologize if it doesn't make sense to you. But as I was, I was trying to think about the context of the kingdom in Matthew that we have so far. So chapters 1 to 6... I called the advent of the king and the kingdom. So it talks about Jesus' birth and his calling of his disciples. Chapters 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, the character of the kingdom, you might say. Chapters 8 and 9 are a list of some miracles, and it's like Jesus is authenticating and showing the power of the kingdom. And then in chapters 10 to 12, there's these interesting reactions from different people, this kind of mixed response to the kingdom. And now we land in chapter 13, which are the kingdom parables. How is God going to work out his kingdom purposes in the world? What is the future of the kingdom? What do its citizens look like? And as uh, Joe and Doc have shared in previous weeks, uh, the setting was on the Sea of Galilee. It's a very agricultural area, lots of farming going on and fishing and things like that. So many of Jesus' parables relate to farming or those kind of things, and there's no exception to today. There's two different aspects to these parables, and I'm going to just highlight them again as we look at them. First one is, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its, in its branches. And the second one, he told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So there they are. 
So first of all, let's talk about mustard, right? Many of you might have seen mustard fields. They're beautiful yellow. Mustard's been around for thousands of years. We know it like French's mustard or Dijon or something like that. Basically, you take the seeds of the mustard plant and either whole or cracked or ground, you mix them up with vinegar or water, and you come up with this kind of condiment. And the plants are fairly small. They grow maybe maximum about three feet high if you look at a mustard field. The next parable talks about yeast, or some, some of your translations will say leaven, right? And that's probably a little more accurate than the word yeast, because in those ancient times, they didn't use packaged yeast, like we think of, right? Um, they had, it's more like a sourdough, right? A little piece of leaven, of soured dough from a previous uh, mixing, and they'll put that into the bread and work it through over and over again. So those are the two kind of things that Jesus is talking about, these two different things, mustard seed and leaven. So as you look at these two parables, Matthew and Luke, incidentally, link these two together and put them together in their retelling. So when I'm comp- I want to compare these parables. That's what I was praying about this week and just really un- trying to understand um, these parables are so short, right? So again, I'd, I'd really encourage you guys to, to um, study them yourselves. But I just want to share with you what God kind of led me down this path again, and I want to share that path with you. So I was trying to compare these parables. I looked at some commentaries and some other things, and I was praying. There were several things that came out. One, obviously, is that something small becomes something big. Right? That's very simple. If you go to Bymart, you see all these seed packages. In springtime, it's really fun to look at the pictures and you can imagine what kind of vegetables you're going to get. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't always work, but anyway. Um, if you open a package, it's always surprising to me, right? You've got this package you've paid you know, $3 for and you open it and you have to kind of shake around. And there in the corner is a little pile of tiny seeds, right? And it's even hard to get them out. It's amazing how small they are. When we bought our first house... Um, we were so excited to plant a garden. And um, we decided, some of you will laugh when I say this, we decided to plant zucchini, right? We'd heard that zucchini grow well in the Willamette Valley. We were living near Hillsborough. There's the zucchini seeds in the corner. And you plant the seeds and you weed out the little ones. And in the end, we left, I think, five or six zucchini plants in our garden, right? And you know what happened, right? You had zucchini and you were looking up recipes for zucchini and trying to figure out how to use these zucchini. There were so many growing. Each plant can produce a lot of zucchini. I don't know if you've heard the story of the lady who was in a similar situation where she had two many zucchini and she didn't know what to do with them. So she decided to visit a friend and gift her with some zucchini. So she put three big zucchini on the passenger seat of her car, and she drove off to visit her friend. But on the way, she had to stop by the store to pick up some other things. While she was in the store shopping, she had a terrible thought, and she remembered that she had not locked the car doors. And so she got very anxious, and so she rushed through the rest of her shopping, and she ran out to her car and looked through the window to the passenger seat, and she was too late. There on the seat were eight more zucchini. (laughs) You guys know what I mean if you've ever planted zucchini plants. How about yeast, right? I've tried making bread in a bread machine. My wife will tell you we no longer have a bread machine because it never never seemed to work. Um, When you put stuff in a bread machine, you put the flour and water and things like that, you put it in a certain order, and the last thing you put in is this little bit of yeast. You make a little divot in the top and pour in the yeast, and that's the last thing. And now in this story, right, it's not yeast, it's leaven, but it's the same idea. 
It's not, not three pounds of flour like you might have in a bread machine. I mean, three cups of flour. It's 60 pounds of flour. That's a huge amount of flour. So this little bit of leaven evidently has a big effect. And it works its way through the dough. So you might say again that something small is becoming something big. Well, what might be some other similarities? Well, the growth is surprising. That's what I thought as you read those parables. The growth is surprising. A mustard seed, right? There's one. It's about a millimeter, 750 of them to a gram. They're very small. So why did Jesus choose to talk about a mustard seed? You know, people were familiar with um, perhaps the cedars of Lebanon, this great magnificent tree in the northern part of Israel. And uh, why didn't he talk about a a cedar of Lebanon, this this gigantic tree that was going to grow? Well, I think he didn't because... It's unexpected, right? If you plant a mustard seed, normally they're going to grow a couple of feet, like I said. But if you leave a mustard plant, it will keep growing. I did a little research on this. Um, There is a particular type of mustard called black mustard, Brassica nigra, that if left alone can become a tree, and that is an actual black mustard tree there. It can grow as much as about 15 feet tall. It's quite big. But it's very unexpected. People listening to this parable would have thought, wait a second, you know, we never leave our mustard to get that big. This is really unexpected, this huge tree that has grown. Same thing with the, the leaven, the 60 pounds of flour. Like That's a lot of flour. That's enough bread for an entire village. So that was very unexpected. Okay, the growth is subtle. Have you ever watched a seed grow into a tree? Bring your lawn chair, sit down. It takes a while, right? You're not going to see it happening overnight. The same with baking bread. Ethan here is great at baking bread, and he is very patient. I've watched him, and it's amazing how many times you have to leave the dough to rise, right? I get very impatient, but it's like, oh, a couple hours, we've got to set it aside, three hours, overnight even. It's amazing. But that's how the, the yeast works. It's invisible. It, it's in the dough, and it does its work. It tends to... It, creates bubbles or whatever it does, and it it makes the bread grow and grow and grow. It does its work subtly. Um, Some translations say that the woman hid the leaven in the dough. It's It's a hidden thing that's working. Maybe that's another clue as to how the kingdom works in people. It's interior, subtle. And again, Jesus likes shocking people, right? It wasn't like the kingdom was going to come crashing onto the scene like a military coup or something like that. It was going to be way different from what people expected. So again, there's a 50-pound bag of flour, and that's some challah, which is a um, a Jewish bread that has leaven in it, really delicious. Can you imagine how much challah, 60 pounds of flour, would make? It's going to be a lot, right? But that growth again... The yeast, when those loaves are growing, is going to be very subtle, that growth. So as I was thinking about this um, and reading some commentaries again, it was interesting how many times, especially the picture of this tree growing, representing a kingdom, shows up in God's word. There's a, a place in Ezekiel 31 where it talks about the kingdom of Assyria. In Daniel 4, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and his dream Um, They both describe the kingdom being like this massive tree that grows bigger and bigger, and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches, just like this parable says. But there's another um, example in Ezekiel 17 that I was pointed to that I really appreciated, and I want to read this to you, uh, 17, 22 to 23. 
God is talking and he says, I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. I can't say that. Shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I found that very interesting. That same concept of incredible growth from something small to something very big. And also surprising growth. Even the dry tree was going to flourish. It's an indication, again, of this idea of the kingdom being unexpected and growing. In Daniel 2, there's this, just very quickly, there's um, this Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He dreams about this statue of all these different kingdoms, including the Roman Empire at the bottom. It's prophetic about what's going to happen. And it talks about this rock that comes and strikes the bottom of the statue and smashes it. And the rock, it says, that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And again, that's talking about this amazing growth of the kingdom. One more place. In Hebrews 11:12, it says, relating to Abraham again and the promise, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Absolutely astounding growth from this one man, 100 years old or whatever, and his wife old as well, was going to come this holy seed that was going to become as numerous as sands on the seashore. And we benefit from that to this day. But anyway, something was very interesting to me, um, and I'm not sure how pertinent it is, but I'm going to share it anyway. Genesis 18.6, as I was looking about this 60 pounds of flour, in Hebrew, that amount is three seers of flour. And I was looking where else that showed up in Scripture, and here it showed up in Genesis 18.6, when God comes down to Abraham and tells him and Sarah that in a year they're going to have a son, and he's going to be the seed, right? That The line is going to continue through him. And it's interesting, when Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, he said, quick, get three seers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. It's that same amount, 60 pounds of flour, I'm not sure what we're going to do with all that bread, give some extra to the guests or use it, but it was just an interesting little thing in my mind, excuse me, Um, but that same amount was mentioned at that time with Abraham. So continuing on, what might the seed represent? So these parables, unlike several of them that we've studied so far, don't have a specific explanation in the scriptures. It doesn't, the disciples don't come later and ask, what do these parables mean? And we don't get that explanation. So as I was praying through and thinking, okay, what do these parables, you know, what does the, the dough represent? What does the seed represent? These are just some things that I felt like God showed me as I was doing it. Again, please study it yourself. But as I was thinking about the New Testament, what is the character of the kingdom that is displayed in the New Testament? What do we see? Well, we see small beginnings, right? Like the seed. So some possible examples, if you look at Jesus, you think about one person, right? He is, yes, he's God who became a man, but the influence, this one man, this carpenter from Nazareth that has changed the lives of millions and billions of people over history. What kind of small beginning <laughs> more than that, right? This, this one man, all these things happen. He chose 12 disciples 
right? He didn't choose this gigantic, you know, military overthrow or anything like that. He poured his life into 12 people that he was going to commission to go into all the world. Talk about the small beginning. The Apostle Paul, he, he kind of plucks the Apostle Paul out of his life and gives him this commission to go and to go to the Gentiles. And this one man has an amazing influence as he plants churches and as he writes a good portion of the New Testament as the Holy Spirit inspired him. Another one person that God used in amazing ways. And in Scripture, it shows up again and again, these prayers of people, just maybe a single prayer that has far-reaching consequences. And in the book of James, it says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And that was just another thing I thought of in terms of the little things that show up in the New Testament that have big, big consequences. The yeast, what might that represent? Again, thinking that through and looking through Scripture, it, um, to me it's like subtle, hidden growth. In Luke 17, 20 to 21, the Pharisees want to know the nature of the kingdom. And, and Jesus says, it's not like I can say there's the kingdom or there's the kingdom because the kingdom of God is within you. It's, it's hidden. It's a subtle thing. It's not a huge overthrow of the empire like they were thinking. It's just interior changes. Mustard seed shows up again in this little uh, verse in Matthew 17, 20, when Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea and it will happen. So a little bit of faith, like a grain of mustard seed, can have huge consequences. I think um, in the story of Nicodemus too, when he's puzzling about what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus explains that you have to be born again to become a Christian, right? To become a follower of Jesus, you have to be renewed from the inside, born of water and the Spirit. It's an inward change. It's not following a bunch of rules or regulations. It's coming to Jesus in repentance and faith and belief and asking him to be your Lord and Savior. It's an inward thing that has big, big consequences in your life. The Holy Spirit works in those subtle ways. What might the tree and the dough represent? Okay, Definitely in these parables, there's surprising growth. A little seed becomes a huge tree. The leaven works through this huge amount of dough. So coming up very soon at the end of the Gospels is the book of Acts. And then we see this amazing event at Pentecost where you've got a very small number of believers, very scared, hidden away, not sure what to do. And the Holy Spirit comes on them um, like tongues of fire and makes them bold witnesses. And they go out and Peter starts um, sharing with this great crowd of people that are there. And it's amazing transformation. It says there in Acts 2 that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. If you think about a small action that had huge consequences, the birth of the church was one of those things. And it talks about all the different languages that were represented, where people had come from at that time. And I looked it up just um, for interest. Where were the modern-day countries that those people came from? And the list is Libya, Egypt, Italy, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, Iran, and Turkmenistan. So all those people groups were representative there. And the disciples were confronted with this amazing truth that it wasn't, the gospel wasn't just for Jews, it was for all nations. This was shocking to them, right? It must have been. 
This picture of the birds of the air were going to come and nest in this kingdom tree. Birds from all different nations of the world were going to come here and benefit from the growth and the shelter of the kingdom of God. That harkens back again to the nations uh, in the Abrahamic covenant that promised to Abraham. The amazing growth of the church would literally transform the world through the work of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus' great commission as they went out. So, did the growth continue? That's the question. Is it still happening? Is the kingdom still growing in surprising ways? Yes. Emphatic yes. It is, is reaching to the ends of the earth. It is amazing. When you, when you investigate and you look at what God is doing around the world, I really encourage you to do it because it's tremendously exciting. This is a, a kind of something that has happened over time that's very interesting. You might say for hundreds of years, the, the biggest number of Christians were in the north, right, in Europe and America. But there has been a change over the past uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Now, in 2020, it says that about 30% only of Christians are in the north, what we call the global north. And in South America, Africa, Asia, and Oceania, the majority of Christians live in those regions. There's been explosive growth across the global south. They are sending missionaries. They are, lives are being transformed. It's amazing what's happening in the global south. I looked up, just for interest, which countries in the world where there are Christians have the highest percentage per capita, per Christian capita, of missionaries going out. So that means if you look at just the Christian population in the country, which has the highest percentage of missionaries from that group of Christians, right? You might think the U.S. Well, the U.S. definitely sends out the most missionaries, but that's not the highest by the number, not the highest by the percentage, by the number of Christians that there are in the U.S., the country, I saw this in a couple of places, that sends out the highest percentage of missionaries per Christian is Palestine. Isn't that a shock? Right? It's very hard to be a Christian in Palestine. And yet, the Christian church in Palestine is sending out, per capita, more missionaries than any other nation in the world. The other ones at the top of the list, Ireland, for you who like Ireland there, Malta, Samoa, South Korea, and Mongolia. A number of those countries were very surprising to me as I read that. Back in AD 200, there was a man named Tertullian. He was a great Christian writer, lived in Carthage, and he wrote an interesting phrase that we remember to this day, the seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I don't know if you've ever read the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a book that was written back in the 1600s, and it's, it's a story of Christian persecution through the ages, and it's a hard, hard read, I have to tell you. But it's amazing what God did with just individual lives who are willing to say yes to him, and even to the point of death, that he was going to transform people groups and nations through these people. Talking about seeds having great effect. When Kathy and I um, started homeschooling our kids many, many years ago, Kathy ordered from YWAM this set of missionary biographies. I think there was about 30-plus in them. It was a huge set of books, um, each one on a different Christian missionary. And they are great reading. I read them all again fairly recently. And it is amazing to read what God does with a simple life who just is committed to say, yes, I will obey you. I'll go where you want me to go. One of them that, that came to mind was Adoniram Judson, who went out to Burma, which is now called Myanmar, in the early 1800s with his wife. 
And it's a very, very hard story that they had over there. But they were there for about 40 years, and they translated the whole Bible into Burmese. And if you've ever seen Burmese script, it is just lots of loops and curls and things. It's really hard to read. I found, found out recently that that Burmese Bible is still being used to this day, the one that he translated back in the 1800s. Talk about one man having this huge effect. And I'm going to talk more about Myanmar in a little bit. Um, there's some exciting things happening there. I don't have time to tell you about Jim Elliott and Gladys Aylward and Sundar Singh and Corey Ten Boom and Brother Andrew and Billy Graham and all these other people that just said yes to God and had um, amazing things happen. But these are just the known ones. I'm sure when we get to heaven, there's going to be people there that we're going to meet and who are going to be honored there that we had no clue ever existed. There's been no books written about them, no record kept of them. Maybe they were in some place in the middle of Africa or some island in the Pacific, and they were just faithful. Maybe they prayed a lot, or maybe they just gave their lives to the Lord and were martyred. Who knows? But I'm sure there are millions of Christians that we have no idea who were willing to just give their all to the Savior, and he did amazing things through them. Now, Kathy and I, again, as, as members of Wycliffe, we love Bible translation. So you're going to get a bit more Bible translation statistics, sorry. Um, anyone involved in Bible translation who's actually doing the work can tell you that the curse of the Tower of Babel continues as you're trying to figure out this language that isn't even written down and create an alphabet and how are we going to communicate these challenging truths of Scripture in a language that they understand it's an amazing task, and it takes many, many years. And when you look at translation teams, they're usually made up of just a couple of people, right? Two, three, four people. And they might work, again, for a dozen years, 15 years. If they're doing the Old Testament, maybe 20, 30 years. And they're committed to doing that so that their people, who might be in the thousands or in the millions, have God's word in their language. It's hard to see here, but I'll tell you that out of the 7,300-odd languages in the world, there's still only about 10% that have the whole Bible. So there's a long way to go in that regard. But there's 3,500 with at least some scripture. And this is kind of old data. This is changing all the time. This was, I think, last year. Wycliffe is partnering with tons of different organizations and, and the global church, and they are accelerating this, this pace of starting new translations. And I think there was 300-odd started last year alone, and that pace is ramping up as they're doing things differently and training more people, and the church is getting more involved. It's really exciting. And I think we are going to be seeing, in some of our lifetimes, God willing, the ending of that task, at least that the translations will all be started, hopefully within the next five or ten years, something like that. So it's moving very quickly. A couple of months ago, I shared with you that I went to a conference in Thailand called EMDC, and that stands for Eurasia Media Distribution Consultation, basically boiled down to how can we use media to get the gospel out to the minority languages that rest, the people groups that are hard to access. How can we do that? It was an amazing time. There's almost 800 people there from about 227 organizations, 65 countries, I got to share about scripture apps there and help lead a class on scripture apps. And this, this amazing conference was started by a small team about seven or eight years ago, people that God gave the vision to, and now it's on every year. And it just gave me the chills to be there because everybody in that room from all these different countries all have the same purpose. They all want to work together and partner together to get the gospel out there to the ends of the earth. And it was tremendously exciting.
I love going. And one of the reasons I love going is I pick up all these tidbits of exciting news. And I want to share a couple of them with you this morning. One of the things that I've heard over and over, and some of you maybe have too, is that Muslims are coming to Christ in amazing numbers. That God is pouring out his spirit on the Islamic nations, probably as a result of years and years and years of prayer, um, and many faithful believers who have gone on before us. But there is an unprecedented turning to the Lord among Muslims. And especially, God is using dreams, dreams of Jesus. And for us here in the West, we're kind of a little bit skeptical about that. But honestly, in those countries, a dream is very, very important. And these dreams are very specific about a man who comes, a man usually in white, who tells the person who's dreaming the dream to go to a certain place where they'll meet someone who will explain to them the gospel. And that's how it pans out. And they actually do that, and these Muslims will come to Christ. Their lives are transformed. It's amazing. I was really surprised that even the Muslim's holy book, the Quran, speaks about Jesus, right? It's interesting how the Quran was put together. They're not even sure how much is Muhammad's actual writings and what else. And there was many versions of the Quran at one point, like 28 versions, and it's all changed and got distilled down to what they have today. But there's some interesting statements about Jesus in the Quran that have made it through all those shufflings. Some of them are definitely not accurate, but there are some that I want to read you today that I found very interesting. This is what some of the statements are about Jesus in the Quran. They call him Isa, that he was born of a virgin, he came with clear signs, he was holy and faultless, he is a sign to all mankind, he is the Messiah, he is illustrious in this world and the hereafter, he is the word of God, he is a spirit from God, he was raised to heaven where he still is, he created life, he healed the sick, he will come back for judgment, and he raised the dead. Those are all in the Quran, amazingly, right? Now, it's amazing what God can do with the truth about Jesus, right? Even when people don't have a Bible, when you can share a truth about Jesus, it has the Holy Spirit can take that and change lives. And I, I was confronted with that in an amazing way in a couple of weeks ago, where I got an email from a friend of mine who's been working in northern Nigeria, and they've been sending out teams to train people in evangelism and, and discipleship. And one person went out and to this remote area and found these five village, villages all together. And he reported back that these villages in the middle of this Muslim area are worshipping Jesus. He was so amazed um, that they actually sent another team out to kind of confirm this and get a report back. And I, I emailed my friend and said, can I see that report? I want to see what they find out. This is, this is just a little portion of it. I'll read it to you. Um, the person who, this was an African man who went out there with a couple of other guys. He said, we discovered that, that though these people still tell other people they are Muslims, when you listen to their confessions, you know definitely that they are Christians. They don't want to be identified as Christians, but rather as believers which makes perfect sense in this area where Boko Haram and other Islamic groups are working, right? They've decided they want to be known as believers. Some of the profound things about these people are they don't pray as the regular Muslims do, so they're not doing the five times a day prayers. They don't read the Quran. They don't fast during Ramadan. They go to their own house of prayer, which is not a mosque, um, every morning with their wives to pray. They sing songs of praise to God and Jesus, the Spirit of God. 
They also rehearse the articles of faith that they've written, testifying they believe in Jesus, the image of God who came in the flesh to save mankind. And they uphold firmly the teaching of love. They believe and teach that it was love that made Jesus come and save us and is only with the practical love shown that we can win others to the faith. So these are five villages. They've never had a Bible. They've maybe had some sayings about Jesus that they found in the Quran, and the Holy Spirit has transformed their lives and made them worshippers of Jesus. And now the team is coming out. They know what language they speak. It's Fulfulde. They are Fulani people. And the Bible has been translated into Fulfulde. And so they're going to come out with the scriptures and explain more clearly uh, the word of God to them so they can understand more about what they're believing. But God has already done, in a sense, the hard work. Right? He's come in with his spirit and transformed these people's lives. In a, in a very dark area of Nigeria, and it's amazing what he is doing around the world. Um, Muslims, interestingly enough, um, just talking about them a bit more, is that they have uh, a number of books that they revere, not as much as the Quran, but they believe that the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, are kind of holy books, that the book of Psalms is a holy book, and the Injil, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is a holy book. They don't think it's as good as the Quran, right? But they do revere them. And I think because a lot of Muslims have become rather um, concerned about all this Islamic fundamentalism, that many of them are looking for a deeper meaning. They're not finding meaning in the Quran. And so they're turning to the Injil, the Gospels, and reading about Jesus there. And I met a friend at EMDC. I met a guy. He wasn't my friend then. He is my, my friend now. He was in the class I was teaching he was learning how to do a scripture app for the Fulfulde people, for the Fulfulde language, the Fulani, the same people group. And he shared with me that when he was in that area of the world, people were knocking on his door at night, at like nine o'clock at night, secretly coming and saying, do you have a copy of the Injil? Do you have a copy of the Injil that I can read? So he and his team, they translated the Bible into Fulfulde. They've made the printed Bible, that's it in the bottom left there, is absolutely beautiful. Um, which is very appealing to Muslims to have a beautiful book because they revere the scriptures very highly. So it's beautifully illustrated. And um, it's also been done in app form. He said there's been 14,000 downloads of the Bible app in full full day. And um, thousands of copies of the Bible have gone out into this people group. So God is doing amazing things among the Fulani people. And again, Boko Haram, there's lots of Fulani who are involved in kind of... um, Difficult practices there, but God is making a difference up there through his word, through his spirit. He is transforming lives. And it it was just so exciting to be there and hear all his stories. I wish I could share more of them with you. But time and time again, people coming and being absolutely hungry and thirsty for the word of God. So God's kingdom is growing in surprising ways in these countries. One more thing. Back to Myanmar. I told you I was going to share a little bit about that. So... If you look at the, the history of the country, it's been very hard. Lots of military uh, rules, and uh, they ousted the president many years ago in 1960, and it's been ruled by the military. There's been much persecution of Christians, villages burned, and things like that. There was a brief window about three or four years ago when they had a democratically elected parliament, but then the military took over again. And um, the borders have been closed for a long time, Right before the EMDC conference in Thailand, the borders opened. And in this class that I was able to do with my colleagues teaching scripture apps were two men from Myanmar. And um, it was amazing to meet them, just to see them. You know, believers from Myanmar, there they were. And um, 
we got to teach them how to put the Bible into app form so they could share it with the people um, in their country. And I just wondered, again, these two guys who made it out to get this training, how much of an impact these seeds will have as they grow, God willing, in Myanmar. And we actually got to hear a little bit more about that um, in the conference. I can't even remember who shared it, but they, they went into Myanmar and they did some kind of um, uh, research as to how the church was doing. And they came back with the information that there are 26 over 26,000 house churches in Myanmar, even despite years and years of persecution. So just like you might hear about China sometimes, the growth of the church in China, these, these places where it is, is illegal to be a Christian, God is doing an amazing work and growing his church in amazing ways. So I could tell many more stories, but we've got to move along to the end here. So being seed and yeast, I think you probably agree with me, the greatest challenge ever given to mankind is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In terms of missions, when I think of that, Um, That same commission, just reworded in my mind, locate every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on planet Earth. Find out a way to communicate the gospel in a manner they can best understand so that as many as possible can become disciples of Jesus. And someone wrote, I can't remember who, but they said, this is a God-sized mission. It originates from the heart of God, and it's only possible with God. So, when I think, zooming down from the planet Earth all the way down to the United States and Oregon and Central Oregon and Prineville and my house, and there's me, right? What can I do as, as part of the Great Commission? How can my little seed make a difference as part of this kingdom growth? So, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this idea, um, back to that, and dunk and dunk, how God works in a, in a heart right, is little by little. I'm trying to remember every day to start the day praying, Lord, give me a soft heart, soft heart to you today. This psalm, again, I'll share with you these couple verses from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So we work with many missionaries overseas who have said, Lord, here am I, send me. Right, That's a big step. But even each one of us in this room every morning can just say, Lord, here I am. What do you want me to do today? What's your will for me today? What do you want me to do as part of your kingdom? We've talked about this many times, especially this year, as we've looked closely into our church's mission statement. We want to be a people that embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. We want to do that with our neighbors. We want to do that in Prineville. But as I was thinking, I, I want to think more about also, I don't want to just think about Prineville and my neighborhood. What does God want me to do about his kingdom plans for the world? In college, Kathy and I were members of Campus Crusade, and they talked about this concept of being a world Christian. It's a kind of a strange term, so I'm calling it a kingdom Christian. It doesn't mean being a worldly Christian, like being uh, just blending in with the world, but how to be a Christian who knows what's going on in the world, who is actively involved in praying for the world, praying for different things around the world. 
So as I was brainstorming some things that I'm trying to implement in my life and some things even beyond that that maybe might be pertinent to you, I just came up with a quick list. I'm not going to say this is, there's anything special about this list, but I'd really encourage you guys to think through and say, Lord, is there one thing that you would want me to do so I can better understand what you're doing in the world and be a part of what your, your kingdom is doing around the world? So here's just some ideas. Praying for the persecuted church. There are all kinds of resources available for that. If you go to Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors, their websites, you can get prayer calendars, you can get email updates, but let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. You can pray for and support a missionary. Kathy and I have been supported by about 50 or 60 people in about five churches for 20 years now, and people have faithfully given to us so we can do what we do. Um, you guys support other missionaries through this church. So that's one thing that is just has a huge, huge impact. And pray for your missionaries, please. Pray for them. Even a small prayer can have mighty effects. Pick a country. Maybe it's one of these countries where a missionary serves from the church. But pick a country, research it, find out the latest news, and keep up with what's happening in that country. Find out how many Christians there are. What's the state of the church in that country? What are some prayer requests that we can be praying for that country? You can go to Wycliffe's website and sign up to pray for a Bible-less people, so someone who hasn't got the scriptures yet. You can even sign up for something where you're praying for teams that are almost ready to publish the scriptures. And that is when Satan attacks many times. People get sick. uh, People die even. Um, We had that happen in a project in Senegal where the lead translator got sick and died very quickly. And so Satan attacks at that point where God's word is almost ready to be finished and put out. So pray for those, those, it's called finish line, finish line projects. Learn a language. I've been having fun on Duolingo, and I know a number of you here, because I'm friends with you, like Corey and Melissa um, and Ethan, learning languages on, you can learn on this, this program online, it's free, called Duolingo. I'm trying to learn Spanish, brush up on my French, and a little Dutch as well, because I've been going to the Netherlands every now and then. So it's really fun. Um, why not learn Spanish so we can communicate better with our brothers and sisters in the second service? Um, I'd really encourage you. Um, to think about doing that. Just a little bit, five minutes a day, something like that. Go on a short-term mission. As I look out here, I can see a number of you who have done that. Thank you for doing that. Um, There will be hopefully more opportunities in the future to do that. But maybe go and visit a missionary or go and see what God is doing firsthand around the world. Maybe he's even calling you long-term. We don't know. Go to a missions conference. There's one in Portland, I think, in January each year. Um, Learn about all kinds of things that are happening Um, You can help fine-tune scripture apps. What on earth does that mean? Well, at one point where we're working on scripture apps, we put the audio and text together and sync them up. The program does it automatically, and it does pretty well most of the time, but there's still parts where it's off. And we have a team of about 30 volunteers that take about an hour a day or a couple hours a week, and they help sync those, those bits up that are missing. They go through a chapter or a book of the Bible and so if you're interested, it's something you could do, again, a couple of hours a week or a little bit each day. Please come see me. Love to get you signed up. Come to join us on Thursday at 5 p.m. We have a pretty small group that faithfully show up between 5 and 6 on Thursdays in the prayer room back here. Um, we pray for the church. We pray for Primeville. We pray for our missionaries. Pray for the world. Pray for the persecuted church. So please come join us. And if that time doesn't work for you, pick another time. Start a group. And you'll be amazed um, what God can do as we pray for these different countries.
One more last thing I was going to add to this list. It didn't make it in my PowerPoint, but I got a call two days ago from a lady out of the blue, and she told us that her mom, um, our kids call her Grandma Bonnie, this lady. Um, sorry. Um, we haven't heard from her for a while. She's been down in California, not well. Um, we thought she just had back pain, but as it turns out, she has advanced cancer, and we just got the word. So she is in probably her last days. And um, when we think back about Grandma Bonnie, um, we talk about small seeds that had big effects. Uh, back in 2002, I think it was, our church wanted us to, Kathy and I, to take this class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And it was a, a class about what God is doing in missions, what he's done through the Bible, um, his plan for the nations, and what he's doing right now around the world. It was a big class, three months long, lots of homework. Um, we didn't think we could do it because we had four young kids. And um, we got a call from Grandma Bonnie. Sorry. And she said, I'll watch your kids for you. I'll come, I'll watch your kids. So she did for those three months. Uh, once a week, she came and watched our kids. And that's why they call her Grandma Bonnie. And um, that enabled Kathy and I both to go to this class. And through that class, those three months, we were able, step by step, to open our hearts and pray, Lord, you know, if you want to use us, you can use us wherever in the world. So that little action, I should add babysitting on that list, right? That little action of babysitting was what God used. That's what Bonnie did. That was her role, right? We needed a babysitter. He picked Bonnie. She did it. And that's why we got to go on the mission field and that we're missionaries to this day. So anyway, don't underestimate what God can do through these little bits of seed, this leaven, little actions. He's, he grows his kingdom in surprising ways. And dunk and dunk, right? So here's a beautiful tree. If you're like me, you get distracted by all kinds of things, right? Days, weeks, months slip by, even years slip by. I really don't want my life to just slip by, right, without being all I can to be seed and leaven in the kingdom of God. And as we do that, as we just submit to him each day, even those little small actions multiplied by thousands, multiplied by millions of believers around the world, it's amazing what a beautiful tree can grow. So let's pray prayerfully ask the Lord to show us what our part might be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, you are amazing. Um, you are unexpected what you do. We think you're going to work a certain way and you work a different way. Nobody would have guessed that the kingdom coming would be an, an interior kingdom of heart change rather than a military overthrow of the Roman Empire. Nobody would have thought that you concentrating on a small number of guys would actually work and create a church that would spread across all the nations. That people just, a simple prayers, simple little steps of saying, yes, I'll go, simple little actions, simple steps of obedience can have such far-reaching consequences. And it's all for your glory, Lord. We can't take credit for any of it, Lord. If you're telling us to do something, I know I've told you no so many times instead of saying yes or I've been reluctant or slow. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. Um, Lord, please help us as a congregation, each one of us, as we each do our part, to be used of you to build your kingdom. Lord, we, we pray for the persecuted church. Lord, encourage them. Help missionaries out there who are overseas struggling. The churches, Lord, that are struggling. 
Lord, bless them. Lord, please build your kingdom in all the places of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.